This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, I'm Helen Mark, and thanks for downloading this episode of Radio 4's Open Country podcast, a series that brings you fascinating stories from every corner of the UK countryside. We hope you enjoy it. I'm on top of a hill in the Chilterns, but it's foggy, very foggy, and I've no idea where we are. Where are we? We're above the town of Wendover, on the edge of a Uh, coppicewood owned by the National Trust. Lots of people come up here walking, but not today. Even the trees look a bit depressed by the weather, but it is a very splendid place. A few weeks ago, the government published a review into landscape about how England in particular deals with its landscape, roughly 25% of landscape which is protected. There are 10 national parks and 30-odd areas of outstanding natural beauties. And to explore the ideas in the review, for this week's Open Country, we've come to the Chilterns, which is being considered for a national park. And the first person I'm talking to is the review's author, writer Julian Glover. There's something in the idea of landscape and natural beauty, which is more than just appearance. It's about what it means to us, what it does to us, the sense of a human excitement about being in a place. And it's one of the things that makes England's, Britain's best landscapes very special and different to lots of other countries. We have things called national parks all over the world, but often they're seen as wild areas, maybe with a fence around them. Any people who used to live in them have been evicted. They're left as a kind of entertaining wilderness, hugely wonderful and special, and we need a bit more wilderness in Britain too. But our landscapes, our national parks, are human ones as well as natural ones. And it's getting that balance between people and nature right, but also it's very difficult because there's always going to be tensions. People who want more nature, quite rightly, we all want more nature, will worry about the impact of people. People who want to live and work and travel through somewhere can sometimes be seen as a threat to nature, not too far from where we're talking There are people beginning to build High Speed 2, a great new railway. The trick is to try and get those trade-offs so we get more for nature and more for people. And in the review I've been leading, we're absolutely clear we can do that if we get the policies right. And I'm optimistic that we will. Also not far from where we are, a certain large country house, Chequers in short. Yeah, if we turn to our (laughs) right, go through that gate, past those trees but maybe hop over a couple of fences, we might just make it to Chequers, where the Prime Minister lives. So we might be able to get it if you want to go. We could give it a try. (laughs) I really enjoyed reading your review. Reading it, I went, hurrah! You know, things like the night out under the stars for every child. Tell me about that. The way to save nature is to get people to love nature, care about it and feel it's part of their lives. That's how we'll stop England just becoming an urban society. And so we looked at what we can do for people. And you might say, there isn't a problem. Lots of wonderful beauty spots like here up in the Chilterns are full of people coming for walks, enjoying it. Huge amounts of identification with our country is based on a sense of the countryside. It's, it's, it's one of the things yes. people say in polls, almost more than the NHS. It's one of the things that makes them proud of England. But there is a problem, because lots of us love and enjoy and are lucky enough to be in the countryside often. But lots of people never get a chance. It's not just about cost or access although those can be issues it's also just about a sense of confidence and understanding if you turn up in the Chilterns or Derbyshire in the Peak District or in the Lake District 
and you'd never been to the countryside before, how do you know what to do? If you come here, there's a car park, there's a couple of signs. Actually, the National Trust has put some signs up, but it's not very clear what you should do. Are you allowed to march off behind us through the brambles or not? In fact, you are. It's a footpath, but it's not very clear. So people need a bit of confidence. It's not about patronising education or special trips for them. It's, It's about showing it's there for them as much as everybody else. It's about diversity, making sure the countryside reflects all the people of this country. That was the founding idea of our national parks. The word national was there for a reason. It was there for the whole country. We need to make sure in the next 70 years it reflects the country as it is now, not just as it was. And that's why we think things like a night under the stars for every child really matters. We want children to understand it's there for them. It's something they can feel confident about. It's exciting. You can explore it. You can get fit. You can just feel a sense of peace and tranquility and escape from everyday life. This isn't a Yoen... I can't even say it. It's an area of outstanding beauty. But the idea of the review, what's the idea of the national landscape? So what we want to do is break down barriers. So you don't think this is one kind of special place and this is another kind of special place with a different job. Nature travels across boundaries. We need to make sure we link things together. Now, national parks are amazing, and I would totally defend what they do, but we need what are called AOMBs, and I always get it wrong, areas of outstanding <laughs> natural beauty, to be part of that common cause. And they need a bit more help. They don't get much money. They get a fraction of what national parks get, and national parks don't get much money either. So we say in the review we think they should be called national landscapes, and we want to make it very clear in law that they have these roles, these duties, these responsibilities to do things like access, helping people explore the areas. But this is about making them stronger. It's not about making national parks weaker, and nor is it about saying everything should be the same or run centrally. We want more variety. Here in the Chilterns, we think it could perhaps work with the Colne Valley, which is a a nature park coming out of London, almost going to Heathrow. You could begin to join things together. It's about stitching together nature. So nature should be able to travel. People should be able to travel definitely run things differently at local level but still part of a great common cause and that's what's missing and is what we want to get back started off when i first had the field survey there was two two pyramid orchids in there well some years there's over a thousand out there so and they've spread naturally some of that seed has laid in the ground hundreds of years just has the opportunity to grow this is ian waller Hmm. and we're walking up the side of one of his fields just outside Great Missenden in the Chilterns, heading upwards, as you can see. But we can see from the ground, this is flint. Yeah, good old Chilterns flint. Ripped the tyres to bits. Haven't ploughed this land for, well, 20 years. Haven't you? No. And what do you do? Direct drill it. How's that work? Out here is a a forage crop at the moment, so the sheep are grazing that forage crop. But my wheat would be planted into that, through that three-foot-high cover crop, and planted my seed in the bottom, and then that dies down and protects the soil. My whole principle nowadays is a raindrop mustn't hit the soil surface, and that damages it. 20 years ago, I'd have worn out a set of tyres a year on a big tractor and two grand's worth of steel on the plough. You know, that rubber's gone. Once it's worn off, it's in the soil, and the steel's gone, it's in the soil. You can't get it back. So direct drilling, I don't wear anything out nowadays. It burns very little fuel. Yeah. Because when I think Chilterns, I suppose I think Beechwoods. Yeah. I don't necessarily think wheat fields. No, but why were the trees here? I'll ask you a question. Tell me. So they're originally here, and everybody says for furniture for High Wycombe. Well, they weren't. They were for fuel for London, for charcoal. Uh, and then yeah. coal came along, so we'll make furniture with it. High Wycombe's renowned for furniture making. 
Let's see if we can find some workers. In goes the fork. Look how dry that is. Oh, yeah. We've had 15 inches of rain since the beginning of September. Wow, that's really dry. I employ one man for nearly 2,000 acres I farm for, for myself and other people. Yeah. And 200 million of them. Worms. Yeah. It's worms again. I hate worms. Oh, I no. love them. My best friends. <laughs> but look at that soil. All that soil stuck to those roots. And that's interaction between the roots and the bacteria collecting new nutrients and the worms taking nutrients further down into the soil. The roots will go where they want to go. But if a worm's been there, it'll get there really easily. Also, can I just say that there are now hundreds of sheep gathering around us to hear oh, you yeah. talk about... Look. Oh. <laughs> I think they're missing Hi. out on something. <laughs> We've just recently um, managed to start up a farm cluster group. All the local farmers have been doing bird surveys. We've got people on farms that have never been on a farm to do survey work because they're always frightened of farmers. Farmers were frightened of people doing surveys. We've got the two together through this cluster group and it's just making a real big difference. We've got ravens back here, which I'm really chuffed about. Wow. Breathing in the wood. And we had oh, a dozen up there the other day on that wood edge, which I've, never, I've only ever seen two together because they breed here deer had got caught in the fence up by the woodland edge and ravens had found it there and they told everybody all their friends and they <laughs> yes. turned up you know i've got two or three species of um orchids here well there's some that have got five or six and they weren't sure what they were and they knew they got them and they were nice but you get an expert on orchids come and see a farmer who's got it and all of a sudden that farmer's enthused by what he's got and and buys into it and this is probably what happened to me 20 years ago so how do you them. feel about the idea of a national park? I must admit, originally I thought, oh my God, I'm frightened. You know, I'm a businessman at the end of the day, I'm worried about it. Yes, we'll have more visitors probably, but there's already quite a few people coming because our proximity to London is so close. We want them to stick to the footpaths. I think the landscape needs protecting. You know, I suppose HS2 would be a... Where's um, it going, HS2? Well, next valley over, so a mile away. So we'll stand here and with your microphone and your hear this whoosh as the train but then the roads are noisy so the, the Chilterns isn't quiet it's not a quiet landscape anymore and that we're never going to get that back how can we make more farmers or more people see the importance of uh, what you've done crucial here word there you said make don't make people do things you've got to get people to do things because they want to do it you know in the UK there's probably 100 150 people doing this sort of thing with regenerative agriculture we need everybody doing it. And agriculture's got the answer to carbon capture. Look at this carbon that's captured yeah, in here. But we've got to do it through engagement and gentle persuasion, not by making them. And government policy to make people do things is never going to work particularly well because they always do it half-heartedly. Your shed, Stuart to be honest with you, is one of the great man sheds of all time. If there were prizes for man sheds, this is a gold medalist. You've got tools everywhere and lathes in there and bits and bats of archaeology yeah. and perhaps when there's a national park, maybe there'll be some decent sort of visitor facilities that people will better look at this. Oh, this all it's something that's unique, great. isn't it? Yeah, but when I'm coming up for... For 77, you know, we're, we're talking medium term here. Um, <laughs> Stuart King has spent a lifetime researching and teaching the crafts and skills of woodworking in the Chilterns. The chair bodies were responsible 
for all the churned parts for the local chairs, particularly Windsor chairs. And they worked mostly in the woods. This was made for my grumpy, Rupert King. It was made in the village in Holmer Green. That is one fabulous chair that you're sitting in. I've inherited this from my grampy. It's very typical and it's got an elm seat and the rest of it is beach and it's extremely comfortable. Creaks a little bit, same as I do. And I look at this chair and I, that lovely polished arm, I think, I wonder which local wood that come from. Was it Coleman's? Was it at Haleacre? I'll never really know, but I know it's all local. And the last three bodges all packed up in 1959. And government contracts used to stipulate chairs from High Wycombe for government contracts would be bodger turned on the bowl really? Yes. An, an industry yeah. in your woods. And if you walk in any of our ancient woodlands in the Chilterns, you'll see humps and bumps, boundary banks and ditches, uh, you'll see enclosures, you'll see... Saw pits where the sawyers sawed up the logs into plank. But there's absolutely no trace of where the bodgers were because they had a very light footprint. And so, here we are, 21st century. And they're talking about making the Chilterns a national park. I mean, how do you, how do you feel about that? Long overdue. Do you? Do you think well, so? only because if it is awarded national park status, obviously that would, hopefully would give it protection against overdevelopment. In my own village here, in 1850, we were about 300 souls. Now we're getting probably near 5,000, with the prospect of maybe another 900 uh, homes uh, in the near future. There is no plan that I can see that um, really considers the infrastructure needed. So, uh, yeah, I think it would be very beneficial. It's really fascinating to hear you talk about this landscape. I feel a sadness, actually. Yeah. When you talk about this extraordinary life that was here. Presumably lots of work has now gone to London. High Wycombe was full of chair factories, large and small, but the housing alternative industries, whether it's electronics, plastics, IT, there are very few people working in furniture making. Holmer Green, which was a delightful little village, was once described to me by one of the planning officers as a commuter dormitory. So if there's a derelict orchard, farmer's field or large back gardens, yep, we can build on that because it's a dormitory for London. We've got this lovely rolling landscape, but no one goes picking cherries anymore. Um, You're going to make me cry. I know. That's, that's so kind of heartbreaking. No one goes picking cherries anymore. Well, no, because you get on a train and go to London and do whatever it is. That and if people you do if you want London. to buy some cherries, you'll see they come from South America or South Africa, where we used to produce all the cherries uh, and, and other fruit that was required. One of the things about West Wickham Hill is that it's clearly a very popular spot with professional dog walkers. <laughs> there are now three vehicles have turned up. And they open the doors and hundreds of dogs. It's like 101 Dalmatians. You expect Cruella de Vil to appear here on top of West Wickham Hill with dogs, thousands of dogs. That's a sign of the people who live here. 
because this is, if you like, commuter country. We're very near the tube, actually. We're very near the end of the metro line. You hop on the tube down into London, do whatever it is that people do in London, and, and then come back to this landscape in the evening when it's dark and somebody's walked your dog for you. This particular path right behind us goes all the way over to Saunderton Station. I kind of discovered it when I first started sort of walking and hiking. It's my little oasis. I find a lot of people don't come. They don't really know about this bench. I came here once and there was somebody sitting here and I didn't know what to do with myself. (laughs) But that's why. I mean, look, the view is spectacular. And just to have that space to clear your mind, to come out, be with nature and just mull over things. I'm meeting Sadia Hussein. Uh, on her favourite bench overlooking the Chilterns just by St Lawrence's Church, the one with the golden ball, the Hellfire Club Church. When I go to Snowdonia now, I always see a lot more. So like, like, it's one of my favourite national parks. And when I go, I do see much, much more sort of like diverse walkers around. And I see a lot more Muslim women, visibly Muslim as in hijab. I mean, other than that, you can't really tell. But no. And I know I've got quite a few of my friends to come up and walk this particular path with me. So they are more kind of like venturing out more than they did when we were growing up kind of thing. Our older generations, they came here and maybe there was hostility. So going out into areas where there weren't other people around might have been a little bit nerve-wracking for them. Also, historically, sometimes these areas are seen as um, kind of like dangerous. So in some of the countries, woods were where there was danger. It's darkness, it's danger, dogs... They're seen as rabid creatures in third world countries. They're not usually kept as pets. They are more so now, so people are getting more comfortable going out there where they're going to be off the leads. I think it's also the unknown going into spaces where perhaps previously they weren't very welcome. So there's a number of factors that contributed to a lack of visibility of, of Muslim men and women. I guess not just Muslim, I guess I guess minority groups exploring these areas. But there was that element of feeling welcome and feeling as though you can go and explore and go off the beaten track because you've got as much right as anybody else. Trevor Phillips, when he was head of the Equalities Commission, Mm. said that he felt that there was a kind of urban-rural apartheid almost. I think there's two reasons for that. So when you migrate, I think you look for convenience. Because of the furniture trade and a lot of people coming over seeking that kind of work, they did migrate to where there was economical growth because that's what they needed. They needed convenience near them, they needed the shops and everything. Because, of course, if you don't know a country, then you're going to go where the conveniences are close to you. And then there was the element of, well, is it really our space to venture into? So where somebody might be thinking, oh, yeah, I'd really like to go for a trek through, you know, the Chilterns, but actually I've, nobody else is doing it from, from my community, maybe. And that, I don't mean that in just terms of race and ethnicity. I mean, actually, there's even certain areas that are deprived. Yeah. How often do they come out here? How often do they come and just take care of themselves? Only once has somebody been on this bench when you've... <laughs> Only once, and yeah. that threw me. I was like, bruv, move. If the Chilterns becomes a national park, at one end you've got Luton and in the Mm. middle you've got High Wycombe and you've got Slough and, as you say, these are diverse places. Mm. I think sometimes it's just simple logistical things that you sit there thinking, how has nobody thought about this? One of the questions that people ask me is, what do you do if you need to go to the bathroom and you're five miles into a walk? And I'm like, well, you do what everyone else does. Or you go before you, you know, set off. But these are some of those concerns that really put people off and they won't share them. And I'm just like, guys, it's, it's not that serious. Did, did your parents and grandparents, were they 
old country folk. They they were actually they were from the mountains. So whereabouts in, in Pakistan? Were they? Uh, but whenever we went every year, we would definitely go to the hills as well, the mountains, um, and explore the mountains. And that was a huge part of I think my love for the outdoors. Oh, it was. You could see every star in the sky, every single one. And it was experience beyond description for me. It was spiritual, but it was also just spectacular. And I think that that was a massive turning point for me, myself, was that actually, you know, I'm surrounded by this nature, but I come from this as well. All of us, irrespective of background, we're from this earth. It's yours to make of it what you want. The things that hold you back from exploring, from anything in life, that's your imagination. And then you build your stereotypes and you build your barriers along with that. But then it, it just takes your imagination to break those down as well. Yeah. So definitely, you know, when I used to be little and I'd be staring out the window, especially on like fireworks night and stuff, and you really take stock of all the surrounding areas, you imagine what's in there. Um, and so when I was old enough to go and explore, I did. I love that thing that Sadia said about lying in the ground and looking up at the stars in Pakistan and how that stayed in her memory and her imagination because that's one of the proposals in the Landscape Review that every child should get to spend a night under the stars in one of these uh, national landscapes. And that's something that I think would stay in your imagination for the rest of your life. Leila Ashraf Khan is a Chilton's ranger, which makes you think, like, she goes across the landscape on horses with, you know, I'm ranging. I don't know that they're rangers in that sense. We run this session every Wednesday, and it's a session with um, a school called Beaconsfield High. And what the girls do is they they come out and they give their time. Hi, girls. Um, they come out and give their time every Wednesday afternoon to help us with conservation activities. I'm Alia. I'm Alicia. I think to a lot of people it seems like we're like cutting down trees, which is bad. But like we're actually trying to clear it out to make more like space for other beneficial like things to grow. It's really nice like to experience something like differently outside of like school and education and like working with the environment. It's, it's really nice. good for your mental health too. Exactly. It's really nice. I'm always excited to come to Children Ranges. Lots of different types of human beings populate our different landscapes across the country. And I do think that unfortunately, sometimes, especially in conservation, so I was at a, the Wildlife and Countryside Links annual debate a few weeks ago. It was about, uh, they were asking or debating the question, how do we ensure that lots of different voices are heard in the environmental sector? And they were talking not only about um, diversity and age, but ethnic diversity as well. I then discovered that conservation is the second least diverse industry in the UK. Um, I had no idea. And in my time, I have noticed that, not only being a woman, but being a mixed-race woman, you very much notice that a lot of the times the people you go out and work with are not like you, not the same gender, not the same ethnicity, not the same age, tends to be male, white, middle-class, retired people that we, that we get sort of out consistently volunteering with us. So one of my personal aims is to, is to try and change that statistic a little bit. It's kind of upsetting that there are groups of people out there who feel excluded. And whether it just be sometimes that you go out walking and you say hello to somebody and they're literally... <laughs> you know, they pull, they pull a face at you. I mean, it sounds really silly, but my friend Lynette and I, several years ago, we went out for a walk. 
weren't very uh, in typical walking gear, shall we say. I mean, she was sporting a pair of wellies that had a diamond skull stuck to the side of them. You know, we were just in jeans. And we walked past a group of people and they literally looked at us like, oh, what are you doing here in that clothing? It's like, why does, why does that matter? Because if it wasn't for the fact that I'm stubborn and bullheaded, I might have gone, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to do that again because those people totally judged me. And that's, that's what it felt like. But, you know, because I am a bit bullheaded, I went, oh, you like this is for everyone i can i can come and yeah. walk here and whatever i want to wear i'm not trying to hike everest here you know <laughs> like these boots will do um but you see it's even little things like that that i think people need to consider a little bit more you know i found that an incredibly moving encounter because i'm not sure that anything matters more at the moment than the ideas of of nation and land and who it belongs to this landscape belongs to us all 